I love the way the First Gen Lounge makes me feel. Because it creates a space where I belong. We're able to create community. The fact that it's a community. It's a safe place. It also gives me a place to understand different perspectives. The stories of these individuals prescribe transformational perspective. I receive encouragement, enlightenment, empowerment. And also serve as a catalyst to just keep going. Where we're able to be our true selves. I'm allowed to be an unapologetic first gen. And above all else, tell our story. And every episode is unique. I love it. I'm your host, Dr. Eve, and I'd like to welcome you to the First Gen Lounge. Hello, my friends, my family, everybody, everywhere, wherever you may be, whatever you may be doing. I'm glad that you decided to tune in today because we have with us someone who's truly just dynamic as a speaker, dynamic in his understanding of leadership. He has a multicultural background. We have Dr. Wynn Tom Briggs, who is a native of one of my favorite cities, Houston, as well as a martial artist and just a educator, just all around great person that I got to meet at a conference. So this is what I love, meeting other speakers at conferences and having them just be very supportive and very just, you know, family like we, we here. So Dr. Griggs, hello and welcome finally to the First Gen Lounge. Hello, Eve. Thank you so very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And yes, this has been almost a year in the making, but we are here and we're ready to do some great things and make a difference. How are you this morning? Ah, doing wonderful. It's, you know, beautiful day. It's been quiet. I'm getting the interviews knocked out. So it's been a great day. I just love the energy that people come onto the show. And you're definitely one of those persons whose energy I definitely connected with. And we met actually through Janae. So, you know, Janae is yes. definitely um, just a, a true trailblazer in, in her work and just a, a just incredible person all the way around. So I'm glad yeah. to be a part of the circle with you all because it's beautiful, the work that we get to do, especially with a lot of first gens and working with TRIO programs and just leadership and corporations and all of it. Because we do it all. <laughs> we do yes, it all. Yes, man, we have, have to, have to, have to, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't want to, you know, keep everybody waiting from hearing how wonderful you are. So please <laughs> tell us who you are and tell us a little bit about what you do. Yes, thank you very kindly. I appreciate the intro. Real quick, I'm a native Houstonian born and raised here in great H-Town, Houston, Texas. My dad actually grew up about 56 miles southeast of here. And a lot, like a lot of people understand rural farming kind of towns. He is African-American, so he was born in 1944. And he grew up in, unfortunately, in the Jim Crow South. So he grew up with whites only, coloreds only and all that. And when he got to be 17, 18, he decided, you know what? The small town stuff ain't for me. So he joined the army and he went to hmm. Vietnam. And, you know, it's so funny. People say different things. I know Upper E-True has Upper Brown veterans and things like that. The military afforded my dad the opportunity to see Germany and parts of Europe that he never had it even dreamed of. And then he went to Vietnam and that's where we met my mom. And so that's part of their story of how they came to know each other, be together. And I'll, I'll tell you a quick short thing, because this story relates to a lot of <laughs> a lot of what I talk about, too. When they left Vietnam, my dad was being discharged and they got married in Vietnam. And he said, hey, and it's one of my favorite stories. So it's like, he, I call it, I'll send for you. And he says, hey, I'm I need to go back home. My mom had my brother from a previous relationship. And they were like, I'll send him back for you. And I, we call him Jimmy. When I get me get back to the States and let me get established. So this is like 71. And if anyone can remember who's listening, the things that the veterans went through from Vietnam versus what they go through now, how they're treated by the public is totally different. You know, like now, hey, let me, let me buy you lunch with this. So they they caught P 
pure, unmitigated, pardon my language, hell, because it was mm-hmm. such an unpopular war. So as soon as he got back to the ground, he couldn't find a job. He was telling people he was a veteran. People were slamming doors in his faces, you know. And he had a high school education, but he was a mechanic. He was a, a jack of all trades. He was a get it done kind of person. We all know the types. And he had a dream of having, you know, make enough money to get his own, at least apartment or at least his own house. And send it. And that one, when mom came with my brother, a year later, he'd have it ready. And you know what we say, Dr. Eve, dreams are wonderful, but reality is something else. And so <laughs> he had no idea. And five months into being back in the state, he was dirt poor, still didn't have anything. And he got a call And that back in those days for some people who don't, who don't know, because I know we have a lot of different age groups who listen to this. There was no call waiting. You got you got the call on the rotary phone or maybe a dial or maybe the button if you were kind of fancy. And you would have to say, OK, hold on. You put the phone down on the, on the counter. And you'd have to wait, to go get the person, you know, no call mm-hmm. for it, no none of that. And he someone called out. Hey, there's a phone call for you. My dad's name is Robert. So Robert Griggs comes running up. Hello. Five months after he left discharge Vietnam. Hey, Mr. Robert Griggs, this is so-and-so with Pan American Airways. So you can tell how old it was. It was Pan Am, and they're not even around anymore. We want to let you know that your wife and son will be here next month. Mm-hmm. So I shift the story when I tell it to people, like, that's my dad's perspective. And they're like, oh, my God, hanging. And I go, okay. So, and I used to teach college as well. I would tell this story. And I said, if I have a younger crowd, I say, so, gentlemen, let me explain something to you about keeping a lady waiting. And everyone just laughs. And like, you don't do it. Because my mom was not in the mood to wait. And she got on that plane. With my- <laughs> I know, right? She got on that plane with my brother. And here they came. She's like, mm, you say a year. I say six months is enough. Here she comes. So that tells you something about who I grew up with and the kind, the kind of energy they had. But when she got her own brother, my, my dad felt so bad because he's like, I don't have anything I wanted. I, I, I think I got 20 bucks in the bank. And she goes, that's okay. And she sat down with him and held his hand and told, asked him, let me ask you a question. He's like, sure. She goes, do you love me? He goes, absolutely. Because do you love, do you love Jimmy? He goes, with all my heart. She goes, are you happy that we're here? He goes, I'm very happy that y'all are here. And she thought, she said, hey, so what do you want to do? And that question is pivotal in a point in their life where he said, you know what? I want to get to the point where we can have our own business one day. I want to get to that. We don't have to go and work for anyone else, punch anyone else's time clock, be on it, anyone else's beck and call. I want us to have our own. And then mm-hmm. we can make our money to live our life and take care of our kids. They held each other. And she said, okay, let's do it together. And that story is how they became entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. They had to work for other people, but it was a pivotal moment. So when you ask me, who are you and what do you do? Who I am is I'm a child of two amazing people that the good Lord blessed me with that I can call my mom and my dad. But I'm also someone who wants to take that same spirit of understanding that pivotal questions can change your life along with the answers to give you direction where you want to go. But you cannot be afraid to move forward in the direction of what is going to be your destiny, your greatness and your dream, despite all the odds, despite coming here six months early, despite being a veteran and being unpopular because of a very unpopular war, despite being a person of color living in a high crime, high density neighborhood in Houston, where even then when my mom showed up, you know, I talked about my dad grew up in Jim Crow South. Well, when he brought a Vietnamese woman as his wife to a working class black neighborhood, there's a whole nother level of racism. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, we only have 30 minutes. So, you know, you and I can go and go and go. So 
I try and share that same spirit with people. I share that with my students when I, when I teach, when I taught college classes at University of Houston downtown. As a martial mm-hmm. artist, I try and share some of that same spirit of fundamentals, discipline. It hurts now, but it'll pay off later kind of thing. That's it. You know, we, we all have a saying in martial arts that you see a black belt is simply a white belt that never quit. And I think that applies to so much in life. You know, we didn't become Dr. You didn't become Dr. Eve and I didn't become Dr. Griggs because it was an easy road, you know, because you and I both know 55, 60 percent is the attrition rate for grad students, especially in doctoral programs. So (laughs) and your family doesn't always support you. I tell people, if you ask me about higher education, I was in a cohort of about 20, 20, 21 people at the University of Houston main campus when I started my doctoral program, about half Mm -hmm higher education, well, a little less than half higher ed and another more than half on K-12. And I learned a lot about K-12. And I remember the very first night when we all got accepted, we had a little gathering. And my future advisor was like, hey, congratulations, everyone. You made it, you know? And he goes, well, I'm happy for y'all. So here's the bad news. Half of y'all won't be here towards the end. And we Mm -hmm. thought, man, that's a downer. I swear he was right. People had nervous breakdowns. People got divorced. People just put their hands up and says, I can't do this anymore. People had to make tough decisions. So, you know, it's you, you have to have the spirit to fight, to win and to complete. And that's what I tell people. We do that through through everything. I tell my motto is find your inner black belt. You don't have to get on the floor, put on your belt and train martial arts like I do and so many other people do. But like you, Dr. Eve, you can be your you found your inner black belt and you help other people find it, too, you know, in different ways. So that's who I am. That's what I do. And thank the Lord I'm still here. Right. To do it. Absolutely. So you've shared a lot with us and two things that I want to highlight kind of in a funny way. If you're looking for love, you have the entire world to find who you're looking for because your dad clearly went across the seas and found his mate. You know, and I, I, that's a hopeful thing because he knew what he wanted was not where he was, but he yeah. still found it. So, you know, tell y'all people, you know, looking for your husband or for your wife, they out there somewhere. They out there somewhere. So you just got to show up. <laughs> the other thing is that entrepreneurship has always been in your spirit. It's always been a part of your fiber. So it was a natural thing for you. So that leads me to the question of, so why did you even choose to go to college if entrepreneurship was even a thing? Like you can be successful. You don't need college. Mm-hmm. So, and I'll, I'll tell this. So when you have a, and this is going to, this is going to resonate with some of your listeners, not themselves when they know when you are part of a, and here's the, the magic word, family business, and you grew up with a family business, you see things completely differently than working for a business. Okay. Mm-hmm. Even if you're working for someone else's family business, because as I tell people, as I got older, there were things that didn't apply, like HR laws. No such thing. You know, leave it, leave work at home. No such thing. You know, <laughs> you're going to hear it at the dinner table that you messed up. So part of the answer to that question is you also have to understand the type of business that you're in. My parents, when they, they worked for the people because they had to get started, they saved their money, saved their money. It's a classic American success story. Right. And when they got ready they said, what is the one thing that this neighborhood needs that we know we can do do a good job at? They worked at a neighborhood convenience store, got held up a few times, all, you know, all the usual. They decided to save their money and open up a liquor store in a working class, tough black neighborhood in Houston in the mid 70s after a while. So you kind of get an idea of how things were going for them. And then they saved up their money and then opened up a second liquor store. So the first part of my life, one of my earliest memories is riding my little red flyer tricycle around the liquor store as a little as a little child, you know, <laughs> and all the guys 
and people remember this image. Some of the guys would just hang out outside the liquor store. That's where the no loitering sign came in, right? And they'd be, you know, drinking their stuff and talking mess and shooting a breeze at each other. And here I come. They'd all laugh and joke and play with me. And so that was that part of my life. They got tired of that, saved, made a lot of money, check, cash checks, the whole bit. Then, and this is where everyone tells me, do a screenplay, do a movie or a series. You have, you, you'd be Emmy award winning and all that or whatever. The second part of my life in, in business, family business was the, here we go, the hourly rate motel business. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I have more stories than, that, than we have time to share, but let's just say I grew up with that, you know? <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> I, I mean, you want to talk about, you want to have me back? I, Lord, give me an hour and we can have a good time. It's crazy. But what ended up happening is to fast forward, I grew up in from liquor stores and I quote unquote graduated to our late motels. So when I was about a junior or senior in high school and my dad, you know, God bless him for having a good, good heart back then, especially he said, son, let me ask you something. I'm like, okay, pop. So you want to go to college or do you want to have a motel? I'm like, it's an important answer. He goes, if, and again, pivotal questions. He goes, if you want a motel, he was saying, we got rid of our house. We used to live at the motels with the private apartment upstairs. So for a long time, I didn't have a home in the traditional neighborhood sense and all that. I had mm-hmm. a motel room that was cut off from the rest of the motel that was mine. And mm-hmm. I could just walk over to my parents' apartment, like across a little breezeway. And that's how I'd have meals and all that. When I tell people, you can't leave, we didn't leave the business. I worked the shift downstairs. If I messed something up, I got yelled at for it by my parents. When you go upstairs to have dinner, they're still yelling at me about it. You know, you, there's, no, there's no days off at the motel. <laughs> and so my dad just simply said, look, if you want a motel, you can start working at this one. When you, when you finish high school, you spend about four or five years. I'll show you all the ropes, bookkeeping, all the stuff, how to fix stuff. I mean, this was this was the, the a question, just like my mom asked him that question years ago when they sat on the bed when she got off the plane. And he goes, is this what you want to do? Because after four or five years, we'll build one. We'll put it in your name. And you'll probably be making like, you know, if you do it right, $150,000, $300,000 a year. I mean, he, wow. he, just laid it, he just laid it out for me. He says, or you can go to college. Now, he didn't know anything about college, but he knew a lot about how to run businesses and fix holes in the walls, toilets, and how to make a business work and his part of it. I thought about it. And the short version is after seeing fights, drug deals, police activity, shootouts over the years, dad, I don't want this. I'm going to college. (laughs) So that's how I did not go into the motel business, but I definitely went into college. And that afforded me a completely different perspective of life and people, of growth, of identity. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk so much about issues related to college attrition. And sometimes students who come from traditionally underserved communities, economically and socially, well, they go to college and they're like around new people. They're like, finally. But then they realize they're like, it's a culture shock. I loved it. it to me, I got to be the geek that I was. I got to be you know, crazy and fun. I wasn't a party. I wasn't a drink or anything like that. But as a freshman, I would stay up sometimes at four o'clock in the morning just talking to people because I just was meeting new people. I didn't have the mm. best grades, so I'm going to tell you that right now. Don't do that. <laughs> I, I've got these crazy stories for everything, and I know we're going to have a lot of time. Let's just say when I wanted to go to college, I wanted to go to the University of Southern California. I wanted to be a Trojan, right? I just, I just picked Southern Cal for some reason. My parents were excited. They said, okay, great. We even, we even went to an information session back when colleges used to do like their tours. You know, they bring a college admissions no recruiting marketing group would do these little tours around different towns and they had the whole thing they they rolled it out i told my parents about it we all got dressed up my parents were proud of me for 
finding this and bringing the information to them and all this stuff. And we went and they loved it. It says, here's the deal. If you want to go to USC for your first year, here's what we're going to ask you to do. Go to college here in Houston first. You can even live on campus. If you make all A's, you never were a bad kid, so we don't figure you don't have any problems or anything like that. But stay good, make all A's, and then when you get ready to go for your second year, you can transfer. If you need an apartment because you, you uh, they run out of space, apartments, dorms, we'll get you, we'll get you an apartment. We'll even get you a brand new car. I mean, it's a deal you couldn't, you it's a deal you could not even dream of, right? 18, 19 years old, going to be 18, 19 years old. I'm like 17, thinking about this. I said, you got it. Apply to a local college, University of St. Thomas here in Houston. Great school, live in the dorms, only 10, 15 minutes away by car. So it was easy to get to and back. And I had, remember I told you I was up at three, four o'clock in the morning talking with people? Yes. Let's just, I did not go to, I did not leave St. Thomas. Okay. <laughs> 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 my like, are you kidding me? I got my master's from St. Thomas, my MBA. So. <laughs> yeah, you enjoyed St. Thomas. It just worked out. So go St. Thomas. There you go. There you go. You understand. So. Absolutely. I mean, well, I guess, you know, similarly, I did a few college visits when I was going that direction. Mm -hmm. But when I got to Shaw, it just was just, I just knew like it felt like home when I was there. So when it was time to make the decision, although at the time I did not have a full scholarship to Shaw, I will definitely say that I knew I needed to be there. And I want to say maybe two or three weeks before I went to school, I got a call saying that I now had a full scholarship. So I had a partial and, but I was going to go anyway because financially it was going to cover. But anyway, right, you're right. always going to land where you're supposed to be. And I think that that's something for us to con continue to consider as we just navigate life. But just thinking about, again, the idea that entrepreneurship was in your blood growing up and you could have, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. had, it, had it set like just really like how awesome that your parents were in a position to give you something that was wealth. Mm -hmm. Right. Correct. That's not something that happens for many people. So. Yeah. Even with that in mind, you turned that down to go to college and it was clearly the right decision for you. So when you got around to thinking about starting your own business, again, now a first generation college graduate who comes from a background of business, how did you determine what you wanted to do? Because it was against the grain of what you were brought up with. Sure. So something that we forget to tell young people sometimes is that when you go the traditional route, like I went to college, I was a, got a bachelor's in business then went right back and got my MBA, International Business and Finance. Okay, great, usual, good route. Network, try to get job interviews. Got some job interviews here in Houston. The difference was I was brought up with the entrepreneurial spirit and that informed a lot of how I showed up and the things I did and how I worked with people. Unfortunately, when you, and I'll say unfortunately in this way, so everyone take everything I say with an asterisk, grain of salt, whatever. When you work with your family, you have a very back and forth kind of call and response and how you do things, you argue about stuff. Your boss isn't your mom and dad. Your mom and dad is your mom and dad. You don't see them as your boss. Because as I tell mm -hmm. people, you really can't get fired from a family business, okay? So <laughs> I could do stuff that would get most people fired or mess something up. I wasn't getting fired. I was gonna get yelled at for the next two, three days or whatever, or get grounded, you know, stuff like that. You know, that when I was that age. So that, that has its pros and its cons. So when I would interview, I had to learn how to interview for jobs. And the way I did that was a few, a little bit of practice, but mostly going on interviews and being really uncomfortable and discovering those things. When I would get hired, I, I tried to sit at it and, and do the work, but because something didn't feel right and it was a new experience working in a, in a company or a business, you know, I had to learn my struggles with scheduling and being on time. So there were some, there were some pros and cons to a family business, especially if the family business, they, although your parents are great, 
if they're not super duper structured in how they show you how to do everything, that kind of informal growing up around it actually pulls something, can, can kind of beat your detriment. So I'll tell you part of my intro when I do speak engagements, I tell people if I was of you know, humor is I worked for three Fortune 500 companies and I got fired from two and I quit one. So, you know, <laughs> and the funny story is I worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers doing commercial real estate valuation. That lasted three months. They, they got me out of there as soon as they could because I just, you know, had my struggles. I did IT. This part, this part of we tell people that you're going to change careers, like career types. I was an IT person for a while. I, hmm. Dr. Eve, worked for Enron for a while. And hmm. Enron hmm. pretty much went under 15 months after they, guess what, fired me from that job too. And so, wow. oh yeah. And then I, I worked for a small insurance firm and one of the gentlemen who worked there also worked for MetLife. So he got me on board at MetLife and I was there for about, I'd say about two to three months. And then I realized it wasn't for me. I enjoyed quote unquote sales. You know, so this thing, if you have a skill as a speaker or People say you're so good you can sell and you know you can sell people their shirt off their back right back to them that kind of stuff i always had that kind of gift but when you made it you know focused on business and here's a quota and all these other different things it took the joy out of being naturally who i was and i understand mm-hmm. that that's that's part of that's part of growing up in maturity so i didn't like met life and it's nothing against met life i just didn't like the structure and honestly i did not like my manager and that story is interesting which i won't you know i know we don't have as much time but let's just say a lot of the people i saw in the PricewaterhouseCoopers environment, Enron, and even at MetLife here in Houston, one of the offices, they're not bad people, okay? But I learned a lot about how to grow as a person, but I also saw things about them that even if I now, I look back with older, more mature, experienced eyes, I was right about how I felt about that person because they weren't Mm. the best leader or they did have the struggles. Now, as I'm older, I realize, well, when you have a family, kids and bills, you know, you cannot necessarily be the best leader or the best manager. And I understand it, but a lot of that informed how I now show up when I teach teams leadership and conflict management to companies and organizations, and even if it's trio staff, teaching those lessons to young people, uh, teenagers, how to learn to work with other people. Because you know, the old joke is as a college person, what's the two worst assignments that I could give some, uh, give a college class? It's anything related to essays and anything related to group work. And I'm looking at them going, y'all have to learn how to be better writers. You have to learn how to work with and get along with people. So sorry. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. But if you don't teach them those skills, even in high school, they're going to struggle. And that's some of the struggles we see now. Mm. And so, no, you, you got to work with people. So start, start them early. Start them early. Absolutely. And so even thinking about it again, because you've had success. I mean, you speak everywhere like you're <laughs> that's what you do. Right. You have been able to create this platform and this business that is having a profound impact on not just not just students, but professionals, too. What do you do, you know, even beyond the business, though, to invest in yourself so that you can continue to show up and do the good work that you do? Great question. One of the things I do, and it kind of goes back to something that I was looking at before in some of the questions you sent is I do a lot of self-study, like some of the books I read, for example, it could be like books on leadership. Uh, I started off in 2011, 2012, learning about the work of people like John Maxwell. You know, the person who got me motivated, this is going to be just kind of a funny, almost like a, a funny joke. The person who got me motivated to speak was the motivator himself, Les Brown. You know, so he had people like that. I, until this day, I will still listen to him and the style and his delivery, but I still love his message. You know, constantly reading, subscribing to newsletters, whether it's inside higher education, things related to what's going on in the economy, 
you know, what's happening, you know, looking up on things related to Department of Education, especially with TRIA related stuff, trends and things like that. One of the other things too is I, because I'm, I'm on the road, like when I say on the road, like just driving and running errands here in Houston, my wife and I have a business, some things you just can't, you can't get out of your blood. You know, my dad passed back in 2016, but my mom is still going strong and they have one motel that's, she's been in, they've been in it since the mid eighties. She's still got that one motel. I go and take care of my mom, look after her and run to the bank for her and go talk to the CPA and the attorneys, you know, all the business side, the stuff that my dad used to do. So when I'm on in my car a lot, my, my son, for my first marriage, she lives about 20, no, 20 plus miles away from here. So when I'm on the road driving through the freeways in Houston, I'm able to listen to different books because it helps, it helps feed my soul, but also feed my mind. So I listen to things like a book about called Range right now. And I'm sorry, I, do, I don't have the author's name, but it talks about understanding the respect, the, the qualities and the value of people with generalized overall expertise and abilities as opposed to someone who's just a specialist, not knocking specialists, but there's something to be learned like me for being able to have a, going through different parts of your life, gathering different kinds of information and experiences and now sharing that with other people. Because you know, when you're on stage or when you're talking to a group, especially like of young people, you're going to say the same thing a lot of us say when we talk to high school and college students. Like some of us, it's like, that's been so, it's been a while since we've been there. It's like I say, it's been a minute since we've been in high school and things have changed, you know, technology. But human relations never change. The bullying, the insecurity, the, the not feeling good enough to sometimes being faced with decisions that you have to make that you know can affect your future. Do I need to get in this car with, with a group of friends who I know are probably going to do do some shenanigans? And shenanigans used to not be what they maybe were a little bit bad then, maybe they're a little, little bit worse now. I don't know. Or do you just go ahead and keep on doing what I'm doing? Do I need to sometimes walk the other direction? You know, as someone who teaches martial arts, we talk about my instructor here in Houston, uh, Sensei Tori Overstreet, very, very wise person. He's a man of color from the country. So he kind of says everything about Japanese martial arts with a, a unique kind of accent and twang, but it, make, it makes it more memorable, you know? But he says, he goes, let me tell you the difference between self-defense and fighting. And this is applicable to everyone listening. You choose to fight. You choose to get out of your car. And when that person's flipped you off or called your name because you took a took their pockets by you cut them off, you you choose to get out of your car and say something to them or roll your window down and cuss back at them. That's a choice. Just as someone called you a name or shot you the bird, as we say, doesn't mean you have to shoot back. Just as someone honks at you angrily and gives you a nasty look, doesn't mean you have to honk your horn and give it right back. That's a choice you make. In self-defense, it's a thing where you have the ability to walk away if possible, but if the person's coming after you, then you have to deal with it. And so telling someone I defended myself versus I fought, two different words, two different ideas totally. I have, and people always, I know we didn't talk so much about martial arts, but I've used martial arts so much in my life to avoid, to handle differently, to go a different path than what my instincts and my bad mood that day said, is go kick this person and throw them on the ground. Now, you know, you, you, but we said that literally and figuratively. Some days, you know, Dr. E, you're dealing with people you may be stopping off your Starbucks or getting your food and maybe someone's a little rude or they're not treating you as, as nice as you like. So part of you wants to say something and part of you, another part of you may come in and say, I can say something maybe in a better, more meaningful way. And sometimes you just don't say anything out because you, you're not in the mood and you're going to go real sideways on them and you're not trying to do that. So like I tell people, it's the same thing here. I chose to take paths that will help me get to where I am now. And when I see young people, help them understand, like I tell my son, make good choices. Mm. And I started my son when his mom and I 
we, we, you know, we, we got divorced when he was a little bit after, after he was two years old. And I said, you know, I have saw too many broken homes growing up. So my dad was like, you know, you're not going to end up like the people we saw in the neighborhood. My dad, sometimes you just got to be real. You got to be real honest. I said, you got it, Pop. So I made it a point to fight a lot of my personal anger and resentment. You know how it is when people split up and not and have work better relationships with my ex-wife for my son's sake. And that's the thing is that is the higher, tougher, better thing to do. But it's really tough when you want to sit there and say something. You know, even now when we, we're, we're great friends, we love each other, we, we're both remarried. I play, you know, her and her, her and her husband, they have two kids and he has a job where he works a lot out of town. So sometimes when I go and see my son, whether it's for the visitor, pick him up. The kid's like, Tom, Tom, let me show you something. I'm like, okay. And I go and like the little girl will show me something she's made in her room. And I sit there with her and I ask her questions because I'm doing my part to make sure they have a good memory of me, but also that they have good energy in their house when their dad is away because he has to work, you know, to be that better person. And sometimes I help them and the same thing with their son. You have to be willing to show up better. You have to be willing to do the work. We've said that time and time again. I'm sure one of your advisors told you that when things were tough, when you work on your dissertation, your research, you know, you have to be willing, Dr. Eve, to see yourself at what's down the road as the person with that title next to the name or those letters. You know, mm. if for, for people who are listening to this, whether it's, whether it's undergrad, I don't care if it's associate, I don't care if it's a certificate in culinary arts, whatever it is, you know, whether it's a doctor program. When I was struggling to get through with my dissertation, a fellow doctor, a doctored professor, you know, at the University of St. Thomas was also working. And that's another story that I went there. Then I went back to work there in academic affairs, said, you know, one thing that helped me, she goes, write your name, type your name on a piece of paper. So I was like, okay, and type it and like, do it, do it in landscape. Don't do it portrait, do it in landscape style. Yeah. Right. And she said, make it like a 25, 30 point font. Okay. And then underneath that, write what your areas of expertise or what you're looking at in your dissertation or, or your, your set of mine was college choice, student retention, co- you know, student attrition, college success. She says, now you have, uh, when you get all that, go back to your name and you have two things you can do. Cause I was going for my EDD. She says, you can put doctor, DR period, or you can put your, at the beginning, or you can put your name, comma, space, capital, you know, EDD. I'm like, okay, so just pick one. I said, okay. She said, so do that and bring it to me. I said, okay. So I did it. I put doctor. All that. She looked at it. You know, nothing fancy. She's good. She's now take this, make a couple of copies, hang it in your office, and hang it wherever you work. That mm-hmm. is who you, if you keep on the path and you do the work. And that is probably one of the most important stories of what helped me also complete the very last leg of the journey. Mm-hmm. I put my name out there with a title. I said, one day I'm going to be Dr. Griggs. Think about what you want to be, what your degree is going to look like. Think what that certificate is going to look like. My dad was a mechanic. He, did, he was informally trained, shade tree, right? But if you go on for your ASC certification and you're going through community college, you're going through their automotive training program. Just put your name down with the, with the title. Ask them, what, what's my certificate going to look like? It'll say this. Write it down so you can keep seeing that. Because one day that'll be in your hand if you if you do the work and you stay the path. Absolutely. 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 I felt that because, you know, been there, been there, done that. So I definitely get it. And, you know, just necessary that we keep our eye on the prize and that we have the vision and that we're willing to execute, you know, on that vision to make our dreams come true. Uh, We are at a point of definitely wrapping up. So last question I have for you is, you know, just because you've given us so much already. But if there's a piece of advice, a word of wisdom that you would leave us with, what would that be? Actually, 
it goes back to the beginning of our conversation before you and I started recording is the pandemic has shown us a lot of things. Your dreams, your goals are still there. Mm-hmm. The pandemic has shown us you have to be, and everyone gets to know hearing the word pivot, but you have to be flexible. I'm a, I'm a person from Japanese jiu-jitsu and it's the art of flexibility, right? You have to be flexible in order to make what you want happen actually happen. The path, as you know, during non-COVID times wasn't linear for most people. It never is. So understand that, accept it. And this is the time when you have to bear down as for people who, who do like combat martial arts, you know, boxing, punching, kicking, whatever, bite down on your mouthpiece, as I say, get strong and push forward. Because there are times when you have to be smart and how you apply your abilities and energy and other times where you just got to bite down, head down, be gritty and fight through. And the only bit of word of wisdom I can tell you is you have to know when to use which. And sometimes it can change from one minute to the next on a day. You know, when you're, when you're working with your committee, sometimes, you know, this advisor or this committee member has this kind of an attitude about this. But this one has this kind of an attitude. You can't approach those people the same way because that's going to cause problems for you as you're trying to get through your work, like say, for your dissertation. The same thing with some of your bosses or people even in your, in your personal life. You know that if you bring this up, your husband or your spouse kind of gets funny when you bring this topic up. So is there a different way you can bring up that topic or can you preface it a different way? Is there something you can change to still get addressed what you need to address, but try and find ways to disarm, you know, their defensiveness and all that. And that's the same thing for life. Be flexible, but be determined and you will succeed. Mm. Be flexible, but be determined. A whole hey. word. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> well, look, Tom, it has been... Great to have you with us to share your experiences, to share your life and again, who you are from just the many angles that you've had to approach who you've become as well. So I want to thank you for just your time and your energy and just for your willingness to connect and be on the show and to let you know that we definitely wish you well in all of your continued endeavors and don't take for granted what you've been able to share with us today. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. It's an honor and a pleasure and a blessing. Keep up the great work, Dr. Eve. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you so much. Until the next time, friend. All right. Bye.